Good morning. Welcome again to Prairie View Christian Church. Thanks for being here this morning. Over the past three weeks, we've been reminded of a few basics with regard to who we are and what we do as believers in Jesus. First, we focused on our individual identity as Christians, people set apart by God's grace through faith in Jesus Christ, people who are justified, sanctified, and will one day be glorified. Second, we focused on our collective identity as a church, called together as brothers and sisters in God's family, fellow members of Christ's body, and bearers of the same Holy Spirit, despite our differences. And then last week, we focused on one of the most basic things we do, the very thing we're doing right now. We gather for worship. We gather for worship. In doing so, we follow in the apostles' footsteps. Like the psalmist, we long to be in God's presence. And as the author of Hebrews teaches his congregation, the greatness of Jesus demands that we not neglect meeting together to praise him. Gathering for worship is for both our good And for God's glory. But today we end our sermon series by focusing on one final basic thing we do. And that's this. We go out and make disciples. We go out and make disciples. So we're set apart. We're called together. We're gathered for worship. And we're sent out into the world. And this is not just any old mission. This is what we call our Great Commission. So open your Bibles to Matthew 28, verse 16. Feel free to follow along as we go. Take a Bible home with you if you don't have one. But before we read, let's pray. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for the opportunity to worship you. Thank you for the privilege of being in this place Uh, after a long 15 months of craziness and chaos and things thrown out of order. Thank you that we have Sunday morning in some shape, form or fashion. We've continued to have Sunday morning through this all. And Lord, we ask that you watch over us and protect us and keep us safe as our Sunday mornings start to look a little bit more normal uh, over these next few weeks. And Lord, thank you for those who are here. Thank you for those who are not here. We ask that you watch over those who are live streaming or will watch this service later in the week. Uh, I pray it would be beneficial for them as it is for us us in the room. And Lord, I pray that our worship would be honoring to you this morning. I pray that it would be beneficial for us, that we would be encouraged and challenged and convicted and reminded all the things that we need out of Sunday morning. Uh, But Lord, I pray more than anything that you would be glorified out of this Sunday morning at Prairie View. Again, we love you. We thank you for your word that we get to read and hear. We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, starting in Matthew 28, verse 16. Now, the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. 
If you were wondering why there are only 11 disciples and not 12, read back a few chapters. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. After Jesus died on the cross on Friday and rose from the dead on Sunday, he appeared to two women at his empty tomb. And after exchanging a few pleasantries, Jesus tells those women in Matthew 28, verse 10, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. That's where we find Jesus' 11 disciples in the passage that we just read. And based on the other gospel accounts, and based on the Apostle Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 15, We know that Jesus appeared to his disciples numerous times after he rose. But in Matthew 28, even after multiple appearances, the disciples are still amazed by what they see to the point of worshiping him. There's a part of them that's still a bit shell-shocked by this development of the risen Christ. In that sense, some doubted. But then we get to the words that we Christians affectionately refer to as the Great Commission. Words that you've probably heard multiple times if you've been in churches for long. But let's dissect these verses a little bit and take a deeper look. Starting with verse 18. Jesus says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Those words are often overlooked. We get so focused on the challenge, the charge of verse 19, that we don't give full attention to verse 18. But read those words again. Think about those words. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to Jesus. Those words ought to be an incredible source of comfort to those disciples. The commission coming in verse 19 is a massive task. This ragtag group of mostly blue-collar laborers is supposed to go out and convince the entire world to follow Jesus. Sounds a little bit frightening. But Jesus reminds them. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. He's in charge. He's in control. This great commission is not up to them and them alone. And that should be a source of great comfort to Jesus' disciples, both then and now. But there's one more thing to consider from verse 18. If all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to Jesus... I'm going to go out on a limb here and say that we should probably listen to him. We should probably listen to him. This passage isn't just a great commission. 
And verse 18 isn't just a source of comfort. This is also a clear command. When someone with all authority in heaven and on earth tells us to do something, it's safe to say we should probably do it. That's verse 18. Let's look at verse 19 and the first half of verse 20. This is the part that usually gets most of our attention. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. So first, go. Get out there. Don't wait for them to come to you. If we're supposed to be fishers of men, we can't sit back and expect the fish to just hop into the boat. We go out. In the church I attended growing up, there was a sign as you exited the parking lot. And it said, you are now entering your mission field. You are now entering your mission field. They had signs at every single exit. You could not leave the parking lot without seeing those words. And it may sound a little bit corny, but sometimes the corniest things are the truest things. You don't have to sell everything you own and fly overseas to be a missionary. Every single one of us is called to go on this great commission. No matter how near or far God may send us. So first we go. Second, we make disciples. Disciples. Not admirers. Not attendees. Not fair weather fans. Not revenue streams to keep the church going. We make disciples. We make followers. We're not trying to build a crowd. We're not just trying to get people momentarily scared of hell and temporarily emotional to the point of making a rash, ill-informed decision to raise a hand, say a prayer, sign a card, and that's the end of it. We go out and make disciples. Followers of Jesus, baptized into his name and obedient to his words and all of the discipleship that entails. And then third, and this is the last observation from verse 19, these disciples come from all nations. It's not just Jews who could be saved. It's not just Gentiles either. All who believe in Jesus then and now, no matter how alike or different from us they are, all who believe in Jesus are welcomed into the Father's presence and dwelt by the Holy Spirit. Jesus is the fulfillment of God's Old Testament promises that someday sinful mankind could be reconciled to him. The promise that someday all families of the earth would be blessed. As Paul says in Romans 10, anyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Disciples of Jesus can come from all nations. So we go out and make disciples of all nations. And then let's look at verse 20. 
closing words. Behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. We mentioned that Jesus having all authority in heaven and on earth ought to be a source of great comfort for the disciples. The success of this great commission isn't purely on them. Jesus is in charge. But how is Jesus with the disciples? Right after this passage, Jesus ascends. He's sitting at the Father's right hand. He's no longer walking the earth the way he once did. So how is he with us until the end of the age? Well, in Acts chapter 1, verses 4 and 5, Jesus reminds the disciples to wait for the Holy Spirit before they go out on this task. And in the Gospel of John, Jesus taught that it's the Holy Spirit who does the true heavy lifting of showing the truth to a fallen world. He will convict the world of sin and righteousness and judgments. We can't do any of those things on our own. We can't change the hearts and minds of sinners by our power. But the Holy Spirit, the helper whom Jesus sent, he can do those things. And in that sense, the Lord is with us until the end of the age as we go on this great commission. So Matthew 28, 16 through 20 rightfully gets a ton of attention when we Christians talk about being sent out into the world. But, you know, it's not the only passage worth reading. For example, in Matthew 9, 35 through 38, Jesus looked on out on a crowd and had compassion for them. His heart went out to them. It was gut-wrenching for Jesus to see these harassed, helpless, lost sheep. As we go out into the world, may we have the same compassion that Jesus had for that crowd. May we remember that we were once sheep without a shepherd. Lost, harassed, helpless, destined for death. May we tell other lost sheep about the shepherd who found us. The harvest is plentiful. And there can never be too many laborers. So may we pray to the Lord to send out more workers. May we obey the Lord's great commission and be those workers ourselves. In Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse 13, part of the Sermon on the Mount, we read this. You are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand. And it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. 
when we talk about the Great Commission and being sent out of the world, we often use the word evangelism. Evangelism is what we call going out and sharing the good news with those who have not heard it. Well, at the 1988 Lambeth Conference, the Anglican Church defined evangelism like this. Evangelism is making known by word and deed. Notice that by word and deed. The love of the crucified and risen Christ in the power of the Holy Spirit. So that people will repent, believe, and receive Christ as their Savior and obediently serve him as their Lord in the fellowship of his church. Sounds like a pretty good definition to me. But I want to point out that we do evangelism. We obey the Great Commission, not just with our words, but with our deeds. Not just with our mouths, but with our lives. Not just with our tongues, but with our actions. Our good works are not done for the praise of other people, but for God's glory. Nevertheless, our good works may encourage those who are watching to glorify God themselves. And that way we fulfill the Great Commission, not just with what we say, but how we live. Salt was a precious commodity in the ancient world. It gave flavor to food. That was nice. It was distinct from that which was around it. But maybe most importantly, salt was used to preserve meat. Well, like salt, Christians are called to be distinct from the world around us, to taste different than the world around us. And in doing so, God just might use us to preserve, to save other people from sin's decay, from sin's corruption, from ultimately sin's death by telling them about Jesus. Likewise, in a world without electricity, light was harder to come by than what we're used to. Light exposes error, exposes danger. It provides clarity and guidance. Well, we are a light in this world. And this world is dark. We are called to shine the light of the gospel with our words and our deeds. That others might see them and glorify God. That they might see our shepherd in us. One final passage to consider is 1 Peter 3, 15 and 16. Peter writes there. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. We often skip the first part of verse 15, but it's worth noting that before Peter says anything else, Before he talks about defending our faith or giving a reason for our hope, he reminds us to be devoted to Christ ourselves. 
in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. You cannot give what you do not have. Oz Guinness writes that hypocrisy on the part of believers is one of the greatest obstacles to evangelism. He says, hypocrisy is damaging because it squarely undercuts our testimony before we may have said a single word. Now, does that mean that we have to be perfect in order to share our faith? No, none of us will be. But it does mean that we should not expect those around us to suddenly devote themselves to Christ when we aren't devoted to Christ ourselves. We are Christ's witnesses in this world. And we don't want our lives to make us unreliable witnesses. Now, the middle of verse 15 is the favorite verse of every Christian apologist. Always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Now, it's true that evangelism is not simply a matter of changing someone's mind. It's often been said that you can't argue someone into heaven. The poet Dante Alighieri once wrote, Reason, even when supported by the senses, has short wings. Reason can only take you so far. Arguments can only take you so far. Apologetics can only take you so far. Like we said a few minutes ago, conversion is the work of the Holy Spirit, not just changing someone's mind. But while evangelism isn't only a matter of the mind, that doesn't make it mindless. We should be prepared to persuade people of the truth of the gospel. We must be ready to challenge and question and respond to opposition to our faith. That means that we need to know it and understand it ourselves. But as we do this, as we defend our faith, as we give reasons for our hope, we do it with gentleness and respect. Of course, we want to give solid answers to those who do not believe in Jesus. But we also don't want evangelism to turn into a battle. This isn't a debate where the goal is to win the argument or defeat our opponent. Remember Jesus' compassion in Matthew 9. The people we're sharing the gospel with are sheep without a shepherd, not enemies to be conquered. So you put all these passages together, and there's no denying the Great Commission. It's a clear command that we are sent out into the world. On top of that, Scripture gives us some ideas of how and how not to do it. We do it knowing that Jesus is in charge and Jesus is with us. We do it with the help of the Holy Spirit, not by our own power. We share the gospel with compassion for the lost, and we share that gospel with both our words and our deeds. We are devoted to Christ ourselves. We are ready to give answers when the opportunity arises. And we do so with gentleness and respect. All that's pretty undeniable. It's all here. But if the Great Commission is such a clear command, 
that raises the question, why don't we do it more often? Why don't we share our faith more consistently with those who don't believe? Sometimes we're intimidated. We don't want to come on too strong. We're scaled of failure. Failure. What if we don't have all the answers? Well, in that case, may we remember that Jesus is with us. That the Holy Spirit helps us. And that really, he does the real work anyway. And may we take seriously our responsibility to learn more about our faith. And thus be more prepared to speak about it. But in addition to sometimes being intimidated, sometimes we're apathetic, if we're being totally honest. In that case, may we remember that the Great Commission is not just a helpful suggestion. It's a clear command from our Lord. May we pray that God would instill in us a compassion for the lost, sheep without a shepherd. May we be reminded of the stakes that are in play. Eternal life or eternal punishment. And if we really believe that eternal life or eternal punishment are at stake, it's hard to be apathetic, isn't it? And sometimes we're embarrassed. In that case, may we pray for courage. May we devote ourselves to Christ. Set him apart in our hearts as holy. Because then and only then can we expect others to do the same. But one final point of application that I think is especially relevant to this church, and I think I can say it pretty frankly because I've been here for eight and a half years now. A big reason why many of us, not all of us, but many of us, A big reason why many of us are here is because we prefer the small church feel over the big church feel. We like tight-knit community rather than relative anonymity. We like being participants rather than just consumers. We like that Sunday morning at Prairie View feels more like a family gathering and less like a concert or a convention of strangers. And, you know, that's all well and good. I love those things, too. And I believe that big churches and small churches have unique strengths and unique roles to play in God's kingdom. However, may we not fall so in love with our smallness that we neglect the Great Commission. May we not be so desperate to preserve our church's cozy family feel to the point of not inviting and not welcoming more people into the family. May we not be so comfortable in here that we forget that we're also sent out on the Great Commission. In Acts chapter 9, Saul A zealous persecutor of Christians had his world turned upside down. As soon as he met the risen Christ, he was commissioned to tell the nations about him. Saul couldn't help but tell other people about him. He was sent out. Well, even if our past isn't as checkered 
as Saul's was. You know, the whole killing Christians thing. Even if our calling isn't as audible as Saul's was, getting knocked off of our horse and seeing the risen Christ right in front of our eyes, and even if our conversion wasn't as dramatic as Saul's was, to some degree, we've been sent out too. We too have been sent out into the world. To our friends, to our family, to our neighbors, to our co-workers. And who knows? Maybe you are called to go overseas. Either way, let's get back to basics. We've been set apart by the gospel. Called together for the gospel. And we gather for worship in response to the gospel. The next step the next basic thing we do, the next basic thing we are, is sent out into the world to share that gospel. The next step is to fulfill our great commission. To make disciples in obedience to Jesus, the one with all authority in heaven and on earth, and who is with us always, to the end of the age. We were once lost Sheep. May we have compassion on those who are lost now and share the gospel with them. We are sent out to tell them about the shepherd who found us. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for these basic reminders of the past few weeks of who we are and what we do and who you call us to be and, Lord, who you sent us to. Again, we can all look back on our life before Christ when we were dead in our sins and our trespasses. And we can now thank you that you've made us alive together with Christ, that by grace we have been saved. And we can... Rejoice in the fact that we have brothers and sisters in this family of God that we call the church. And Lord, we can enjoy our time gathering together for worship. We can love being here and love being with each other and love singing and praying and hearing sermons and taking communion and giving offerings, all the things we do every single week. But may we also not forget the mission that you've given us to go out into this world and to make disciples. You are with us. Your spirit indwells us. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to you, Lord. And your words are clear. So may we go out and share the gospel with those who haven't heard it. We know that the harvest is plentiful. There are so many people in this world who are lost in the woods, who don't know the way out. And Lord, I pray that you would give us the courage, give us the confidence, give us the obedience to show them the way to you, to introduce them to you, to share the good news. Again, we love you, we honor you, we worship you, we thank you, we ask this all in Jesus' name, amen.